Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I keep saying I'm going to do it uh, early, but here I am last minute again. I spent the weekend in New York City. New York City in May is tough to beat. I was part of an amazing bike race there. We've got a lot of like news, personal slash business updates that go out to our newsletter subscribers. If you didn't receive our Q1 update and want to hear about stuff like that, email me, dan at tropicalmba.com, and I'll send you a copy. Also, Ian and I have another Q&A uh, recording session scheduled in just a few days. And so we'll be answering questions that you send to me, dan at tropicalmba.com. So today's episode is about crypto, and it was recorded on the 10th of this month. So just like a few quick caveats here and my general thoughts at this moment of a lot of upheaval. Number one, specifically with what happened with UST, yes, crypto is risky. This has happened many, many times in the past. I think what's different about this time is that there's a lot more mainstream crypto adoption. A few years ago when a crash has happened in crypto, it's sort of like, all right, computer gamer, edgy, cryptography, computer people got wrecked, but they're crazy. And now it's sort of like, yeah, people have listened to podcasts like this. They've hung around the space. It's gone more mainstream. And so they've invested. And now when they get wrecked, it's a much more interesting news story. And I understand that. It's, it is. And it's terrible for people who get wiped out on this stuff. I think from someone who's been interested in the space for a long time, though, not much new here. What's new is a recession. We're probably going to have a recession. And Crypto tokens have never been priced in the time of recession. Perhaps they're just frothy assets that people who run out of equities to buy, buy them. And so it'll be interesting to see how crypto performs over the next few years. For me, regardless of the prices, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. And technologies that successfully innovate on legacy banking and financial services are the future. We just don't know what it's going to look like yet. In today's conversation, we'll just get a small glimpse of what that future might look like. So at the 10th of this month, just as things were in total upheaval, I recorded an interview with someone I've long been following on YouTube and Twitter because of her long-form content, which includes a course called Zero to DeFi. So if you want to learn about DeFi, check out the course Zero to DeFi. She just explains things so well, and I think that this is exactly what's been missing in the crypto space, not philosophical musings on the whys of crypto, although sometimes I do love that, but the practical hows, including some of the things like purchasing a house by borrowing against your crypto assets. How cool is that? Instant liquidity against your holdings and setting your portfolio in a somewhat passive mode while you have a major life event, which happens to all of us occasionally. In today's guest of case, she recently started a family and had a baby. Congratulations. This week's guest is Catherine Lavery, who since 2015 has been well-known as a CEO of bestself.co, which produces stylish and imaginative planning, goal-setting, and relationship journals. Also, and relative to that business, Catherine's been on a bit of a roller coaster journey of her own, including a business relationship breakup, which you'll hear a little bit about later. 
before we get on that and the crypto part of the interview, just want to say, of course, none of this is financial advice. Everyone's situation and risk tolerance is different. So the research and due diligence is on you. Okay, caveats out of the way. I really, really enjoyed speaking with Catherine. I started out by asking her why she decided to become an entrepreneur after spending so many years at college training to become an architect. I'm curious, your pin tweet, it says, I moved to New York City from Ireland with only $783 to my name to start my 30K a year architecture job. I knew less than five people in the whole city. 2022, fast forward, I've done over 40 million in sales in my own business and I'm living my dreams. I can relate to being the person with $700 in the bank account. And at the time it was productivity and money. What message do you have for the person with a 700 bucks in their bank account about the pursuit of wealth and happiness along the way? So I think you have to go through different stages. There's this thing, oh, money can't buy happiness and it won't solve all your problems, but it will solve a lot of your money problems. So you kind of have to get through that one first. So for me, like when I moved to the US, I was starting this job that was not a nine to five. It was more of an eight to nine type job. So it was like nonstop. I didn't have a lot of money, but the only thing I was buying was like books. So I would read on the subway and up leveling skills because that was like the first thing I could do to be able to get more is to up level myself. And so I think you hit a point where you're like, where I mentioned like, oh, I, I hit these business goals and these personal goals, but I realized I wasn't happy, but I needed to be able to have my money problems at least sorted for the most part before I realized, oh, actually, this is another part of my life that I need to improve. I think sometimes there's this survivor bias where people do well and they're like, oh, actually, this isn't the thing. But you actually, you have to go through that part to be able to realize, oh, this isn't actually what's going to make me happy. Because if I tell someone this that has $783 in their pocket, they're going to be like, it doesn't make sense. Why aren't you an architect? It seems cool. It's a cool thing to study. So like when you go to uni and you're like learning how to make things, like plan things out, you have to be like very technical and make something work. And you have to present it and sell your ideas and you learn a lot about different skill sets that will help you later in life. But then when you start working, it's just the more experience you get, the more I find myself doing more like paperwork at some points. I think the thing that put the nail in the coffin for me was I was doing this feasibility study on a homeless shelter. It wasn't creative or anything I wanted to work on and the hours are crazy. So I started a Shopify store on the side and I was just doing design work. And so I ended up making more in that business in a year than I was making at my job, actually much more, but I was still scared to leave my job because I came from such a, I didn't know that you could just work for yourself. Like my parents all had normal jobs. Everyone I ever knew had a normal job. So like starting your own business was like, what is this? Giving up architecture was kind of like, oh, you studied this thing for like six and a half years and you got a master's and now you're just going to leave it after a year and a half. But for me, I was looking at my bosses who if everything goes well, I would be them. And I'm thinking if they go on vacation, they're still contacting us about like jobs and things like that. And so if I'm looking ahead 15 years at what I could have, I'm looking at these bosses who I respect and admire of what they built, but I didn't want to be there. How did you go from that to transforming from a, an artist who's selling their product to building a, a business around a conception, which is the uh, journals? Like studying architecture and some of the things I did in architecture school was a great stepping stone. Like in my final year of architecture school, I was part of this four person team that put together like the school magazine book. It was basically your thesis project was to design and create this book 
and come up with what we're going to put in it. So it was very, and then get sponsorship and then sell it. So it was almost like a little business in itself. And and you did it over one year. Most people did these just over two years, but you had to like chock a block it into a year and then your second year would be more free. So that helped me a lot with literally like learning how to bind books in the best way and like formatting and things like that. I came here and I set up that Shopify store and I was basically starting to learn more about personal development. And then as I started to learn more about business and literally had never taken a business course in my life, but I just started reading books about it. And then I started applying it and it, it was doing better. I was like, oh, wait, what do you know? This stuff is working. And then I set myself <laughs> this target of, okay, my business is making more of my job, but I was tied there with my visa until my green card came in. So I was basically like, okay, in eight months, I'll be able to leave this thing. And so I'm like, okay, if I want to leave this, I have to learn like what I'm supposed to be doing. So I created this personal MBA of books. Like here's 22 books that you have to read to be able to quit your job. So like every day on the subway and coming there and back from work, I'm like, okay, I have to do this. That sounds about right. I like that 22 book target. It's not crazy, but it's also like you need to get some volume and time into it. What three books or just one or three books from that time period that you still remember in your mind made it a lasting impact? I kind of split them up. There was mindset books. I remember I read one of those books was like the $100 startup. And that was really what helped me start that first business is like, it was more of a $500 startup because I bought a printer. But <laughs> it was basically like, oh, you can start something with a little bit of money. You don't have to have like, a lot of times, even I talked to some corporate people and they're talking about setting up something and it's just like office space and business cards. And I'm like, now I'm like, you don't need any of that. Like you literally just need to sell something. And what's the minimum thing you need to spend? I think the four hour work week, just the, the idea of delegating and optimizing things. I had no idea the e-myth, if someone does have a business and wants to systemize it that I loved. Can you, just for context for the audience, what does Best Self look like right now in terms of the team composition, maybe revenue or whatever, just touch points you want to give us so that we can visualize the company? Yeah, so we have about 10 people on the team now, and we're going to do about $8 million in revenue this year. I have other interests that I've been doing for the last year or so, and I've been doing this for seven years. I was going to have a baby, so I'm thinking like, okay, I'm going to basically take February where I'm not going to be working on fast self because as an entrepreneur like there's other things that I want to work on and for a while I would feel guilty about that like I still love best self and believe in all right. the products but I also need some time away from it because it's been a hectic two years. Well you mentioned that you promoted a COO internally it's something that a lot of us think a lot about and I'm curious if you could help us understand how you came to that decision and how you executed it Specifically, like how big does your business need to be or how much money do you need to make or what are some parameters that need to be in place for people to start considering making a move like that? The person that I promoted was already doing a lot of the role. So I kind of, and I say this to people, like there's this sort of mindset I see now of, you know, don't do more than you're getting paid for. But if you show someone what you can do and what you're willing to do in a job, like you're going to get promoted or if you're not like leave and go somewhere else. For me, the GMs, who was the COO and I, and he's basically like running things. He was already coming to me with problems, but then also solutions of what we could do. And so just taking a lot of weight off of my mind. When you're first starting a team and managing, I wasn't good at it, at least at the start. I've gotten better, but just delegating is difficult. But I think teaching people how you think and why you make certain decisions instead of 
making the decisions and letting them know. Same as when I'm designing a product, I started like walking people through my thought process so that they could learn how I think and then better understand me so that they could make decisions in a way that we would both understand. Does that make sense? It does. I'm curious about the difficulty of delegation because I was actually just speaking with a team member today in a review, quarterly review, and we were talking about how it's difficult. What specifically is difficult for you, especially towards the end there, the last few pieces that you're delegating to an eventual COO? I think a big part of it is trust and trusting that they will make the right decision because I've had some issues over the last few years. Like we had a person on our team that embezzled from the company, which we discovered in 2020. And so for me, when something like that happens, you can go from you give everyone the benefit of the doubt and you trust them to then micromanaging them because you to everyone else that didn't do anything. Someone can only embezzle money from you if you're not taking responsibility and checking things and not tracking your inventory. We did a ton of things wrong. So then it's putting things in place, but seeing people in the team react and then help me figure it out was also beneficial so that I could trust them with moves in the future that would go from one side to the other where like, oh, I'm going to micromanage everyone. So I think going through those sort of problems within the company showed me, okay, these are the people that are helping me make the most of this so that I trust them more. And that's honestly the biggest part. If you don't trust the person or people that you're going to promote, then there's no point in even trying it. It's not a delegation problem. It's a trust problem. Yeah. Trust is partially like a personality diagnosis, but it's also partially like your track record of behaviors. Yeah. So if you're kind of like leaky with your communications or you don't take responsibility when things go bad or provide visibility, then people start to lose trust in you for those things too. It's not just a matter of like being a good person or feeling like you're a good person. And yeah. I remember that was the person that I promoted. I remember he made a mistake with something, an offer on Black Friday, not too long after we hired him. And so the busiest day of the year and I'm just seeing, oh, this is not going so well. And so he sort of came to me after and he's like, if you want me to resign, I will. And I was like, then you're going to give me another problem. Now we know better. So let's figure this out. The accountability and responsibility is a huge part of being able to lead people. Part of the reason I wanted to call you today is you get to this uh, kind of um, moment in 2020 when it sounds like you went down the crypto rabbit hole. I'd had crypto holdings for a while and started to read and more and more people in my sort of immediate network were doing what you did, which is spend a great deal of time away from their company and focused on this new exciting industry. I just found myself in a situation where I was growing a new company. So unfortunately, I just had to sit on my boring and I kind of want to see like where two roads diverged in the woods. Like I kind of consider you went down a way I really wanted to go, but I didn't get to go. And mm -hmm. so I've been watching your YouTube videos and, and reading your tweets and your articles and stuff. And I wanted to bring that to the audience today. Yeah. So 2020, we're dealing with COVID, obviously. Mm -hmm. The embezzlement thing had happened. I was also going through like a buyout with my business partner. It was very like hostile takeover type shit. So it's just my business is like this abusive relationship in my mind where I'm just like getting <laughs> battered, right? Just like nothing good is coming out of here at this moment. And then I see this crypto thing and it's this mirage of like, oh, there's interesting stuff going on over here. And the time I'm negotiating this buyout, so I'm basically checked out as far as, not checked out, I'm still working, but like I'm basically negotiating to buy out my business partner. It's pain. Yeah. So is there motivation for me to grow the company, to pay him more? No. So I'm basically like making sure our team's put together and like we're getting through, but I'm just like 
not working on new products. When you say a hostile takeover, what do you mean? Oh, just like a hostile negotiation. I mean, it took about from February until September to come to an agreement. So COVID's hitting, like we're out of our top inventory. Our supplier is shut down. I have these advisors and they're just like, maybe you want to like hold on. You don't want to be buying this right now because you don't know what's going to happen. But I'm thinking like, I want to keep the team together. I still love myself and I have all these ideas of where I want to go. So I don't want to be like, just wait and see. And so I offered him this deal in February 25th or something. And I'm saying like, okay, basically like time kills deals. Here's the deal. I showed it to people and they were like, this is not fair for you. This is a terrible deal for you. And I'm like, I just want this to be over. Then I don't hear anything back. And I don't know if you remember like in March, I think it was like March 10th or whatever. When when Tom Hanks got COVID. When Tom Hanks, the NBA the shut NBA down. shut down, yes. Trump <laughs> gave his speech and like the stock market just like tanked. The next day, like I get a response from my partner and he's like, yeah, I'll take it. But I also want all of this other stuff. I gave you this deal 10 days ago. The world was very different. then. So I was like, all right, this deal is no longer. I'm not giving you all this other stuff. The deal we ended up doing in September was significantly less than what I offered him in February. And for the whole time, you guys weren't able to really put your best energy into the company, I'm guessing. Yeah. It sucked at the time because it was just such an emotional drain for me. And then the crypto stuff was honestly like just learning about it and getting into it was something exciting. It's not really the money aspect. It was more just this new technology. And I had crypto in 2015, 2016, but it was like number go up. I didn't really know anything about it, nor did I care about smart contracts or anything else. And then as I was learning about it, I was like, this is super cool. And so when I ended up doing the deal with my business partner, I realized I like I had this fork in the road where I'm like, wait, now I have to go all in on my business that I just bought, but I'm really interested in this crypto stuff. And I didn't want to give it up. And so for a while, I just did both of them. I didn't even talk publicly about crypto because there's kind of this vibe of scammy crypto purse. Like, how do you go from like best self to talking about crypto? And so it was very much for some reason I had this like bad taste in my mouth if I wanted to talk about it publicly. And then I got to a point where I was like, I have a synonymous person on Twitter that I want to talk about crypto, but I can't talk about it on my public profile. And then I, at the end, I was like, I'm just going to start talking about this stuff. Because I think as entrepreneurs, like we get interested in different stuff. And so if I'm excited about working on something, then hopefully other people are excited about it as well. I do think that you've actually identified something unique in your voice there, because one of the notes that producer Jane wrote down, she asked, is there a bit of elitism about keeping the mystique or the clubby feel of DeFi in particular? Surprisingly little accessible information on how people can do this stuff. You're one of the few out there that I've identified Yet there's like tons of information about why and like what you should believe and all this kind of stuff. What's your take right now on the state of the industry? Why are you one of the few people that's like just sort of talking basic sense about something that, I don't know, it is complicated, but it's not unheard of. You're able to make bridges to concepts that we all have in our minds from traditional finance, for example. Yeah. So I got in with a group and it was all guys. And when I first was getting into the crypto thing, I got into it from them and I didn't know what I was doing. And sometimes you have this beginner's curse of knowledge where you can't go back to the start and figure things out. I actually never was that interested in finance. I think I just didn't get it. And so with DeFi, it was the first time where I was very interested in learning all the concepts and putting things together. There's psychology, there's finance, there's all these things that go into crypto that I didn't put together before. I honestly thought it was just like tech bro culture where you either got into Bitcoin at $2 and now you're, that's all you talk about. or <laughs> 
<laughs> you don't know where to get started and you think it's only for people that have a lot of money. What were those first few, like maybe practical concepts or even ideological ones that resonated with you beyond the make money, go up or hang out with tech bros kind of thing? I think the, so the Ethereum, the smart contracts, like being able to essentially cut out middlemen by doing things through code. And that is pretty much an easy thing for people to figure out if people are asking, well, how are you making five, 6% on a stable coin in, in DeFi when you're making 0.5% in real life? I'm like, yeah, because you're given whatever the banks will give you for your money. But if you look at how they make their money, they're making way more money on your money than that. They're making maybe 16%, depending on how they're lending it out. They don't have to have a one for one. So if they have the credit system, they're essentially like taking your dollar and turning it into $16 with how they lend and borrow it out. If you look at how they make their money as well as like their offices, their branches, the people they pay, the bankers, bonuses, everything like that. Like the money's there. It's just not coming to you as the person actually putting your money somewhere. And so with DeFi, you're essentially cutting out the middleman and code is taking care of everything. And so someone else can borrow money in minutes from you. You'll make great yield. The protocol will make a little bit and you don't, you're not paying out all these random people that are useless. That's a really nice way to explain it. And one of the things you pointed out is like practical applications of this, because you hear people like making money through things like yield farming, for example. And it sounds like often the way people even describe it, it's like, I'm a part of this scam. I'm a part of a Ponzi. What, what do they mean when they talk like that? And what do they mean by yield farming specifically? So yield farming is when you lend out your crypto to a farm and you're rewarded with a random token. And honestly, like a lot of yield farms that I've made money on are essentially Ponzi schemes where they have this thing called pool two, which is when you take a coin like Ethereum, which is a standard coin, then you have the like magic beans and they've created this thing called magic beans and they give you an insane APR. And as more people have to buy these magic beans to pair with the Ethereum, the price of it goes up because everyone else wants this crazy APR, but you can only get it if you buy this coin. And so what happens is you're essentially printing these magic beans as money. So if you get in early enough, you're printing it and then you're selling it off to Ethereum or whatever else. And now as more people come in, once more people stop coming in, like the pyramid stops. And so this magic bean token what, that was going up for a long time because people had to keep buying it to be able to farm it now starts dropping. And I've been in a lot of them. You can make money, but I think there was a yield farming time when there's a new farm happening every six hours. And if I went to the gym, sometimes I'd bring my laptop because I'm like, what if a farm pops off when I'm at the gym? Like the amount of times I've gone to the gym and missed out on money making opportunities. Some yield farms make sense, but some of them is, is again, it's just chasing the money. But there's a lot of concepts like when I was buying my house. I want to get to the house thing, but what's changed? Why aren't you taking your laptop to the gym anymore? Besides, you know, the fact that you're a mother. DeFi summer was like summer 2020 and this stuff was just getting started. Um, on Ethereum and Ethereum got so expensive and you have other side chains like Polygon was the first one where it was very easy to copy and paste a project. You fork something that worked on Ethereum, you put it over here and you're essentially, the creators are adding some liquidity and then... Do they have like some kind of thin value proposition as to why they're doing this? Yeah. And so that lasted for a while. But then what happens is where's the yield coming from? If you don't know where the yield's coming from, you, you are the yield. So the people coming in are the yield. And I think People just got wise to that. So while you have some projects like Sushi, for example, is a decentralized exchange. And so they 
had essentially farming where you're adding two pairs. So let's say Ethereum and DiCoin. And for every swap between those, you would get rewarded with Sushi, which was their token. And so for that, that makes sense because that's actually a project and product that you would use. So when you say decentralized exchange, that's a, a place that would provide people that hold one token liquidity to move it into another token. And for yeah. you providing that liquidity on behalf of the exchange, you get rewarded with the Sushi token. Yeah, you're becoming sort of like the airport kiosk for two different currencies. When you go to the airport and you have to swap euros for dollars and the kiosk will make a little money in the transaction. That's essentially what you're doing, but with two different cryptocurrencies. So it's kind of like Coinbase, but on the on the blockchain. It's all done through code. There's no public company or CEO or anyone like that. Everything is just done automatically. You can do a swap in a minute. From your perspective, that was 2017 where everybody had all these big dreams about what these tokens could do. And in 2020, when we're playing with all the tokens, what where are we at right now? What are we waiting for? I think NFTs is going to be a big thing. What we're seeing currently with different NFT launches every five minutes of a different picture of a cartoon animal is not something that we're going to see sustained long term. I think it's like the beginning of like real estate could happen on the blockchain through an NFT. A house is essentially an NFT. It's a one address that cannot be replicated in the exact same place. Then, And when you go through real estate transaction, the amount of people and in the middle between you and the seller is insane. And all these people are taking a cut. Well, that could happen through crypto once. And that's not, but that's essentially could happen through an NFT where you can see on the blockchain who owns what without needing to pay a title company. It's like notary and titling function, yeah. essentially. Lawyer function as well. Yeah. Yeah. And same as smart contracts. A lawyer friend that I keep saying, like, you need to just go into crypto law, DAOs and smart contracts. And he's like, can you stop calling me and telling me this? I'm a divorce lawyer. <laughs> Monday. Monday. What's faster than a top fuel dragster down the quarter mile? Your business when you use Dynamite Jobs Recruiting to supercharge your cash flow engine. Strap in, gas up, and let the profits flow. If your hiring is slow or falling off track, supercharge your strategy with a zero to 30 minute phone call with our legends of the hard sell. They'll dazzle you with high pressure, career killing sales tactics, urgency, urgency. Persistence, auto dealership desperation. And then tell me you could use a little more of these in your pursuit of business excellence. Operations managers in Omaha, marketing mavens in Marbella, coding wizards in Cape Town. We're taking this race global. Thanks to the support of listeners like you, it's not just the hard driving, E and closing, showing at the wheel anymore. We've got a whole team at your service. This Monday. Monday. Let's outrun your competition with an insanely profitable hire from Dynamite Jobs. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and click on remote recruiting. One of uh, my favorite pieces of content you have is how you walk us through how you recently obtained a mortgage and bought a house in Austin. On the video, you show how you could actually get positive interest by doing this through DeFi. Can you walk us through the basic concept there and and how that strategy works? This is the background that I think one of the things that gets me so excited about DeFi is imagining a world in which liquidity and, and lending was like smart, agile, and like instantly available. Because we can all imagine times when if we had instant liquidity, like what we could do. I guess that's my idealism. I, I think 
wow, what could the world be if there was intelligent lending everywhere all the time? And your video where you walk through how you recently bought a house is like one glimpse into what that future might look like. So could you just describe it for us how you did it? Yeah. One thing in crypto is like in general, you might pay a little more to borrow money, but you can do it within minutes. And all loans in crypto are over collateralized. So for you to be able to borrow money, you have to have collateral. So say you have Ethereum, Bitcoin, volatile assets, but assets that could go up and you want to participate in the upside, but you want to be able to take some liquidity out of that and be able to use in a real world sense. So for me, I'm thinking like, okay, I have this Ethereum that I want to be able to, you know, I think Ethereum's long in the long term going to go up. There's the merge happening later this year. I don't want to sell my Ethereum to buy a house uh, or an investment property. So I'm thinking, okay, how do I essentially borrow against this Ethereum, buy the house while not taking a tax hit by selling any crypto, um, and then essentially building a cash flowing asset uh, that is taken from borrowing stable coins against my Ethereum. So there's different protocols you can do that with. Right now you can stake your Ethereum and earn 4% on the staked Ethereum. So that's just you. Let's not assume, I don't know stake. What do you mean by that? So staking is when you help a system keep running. So for Ethereum, they have a new version of Ethereum coming out soon, uh, which is proof of stake, which moves away from this proof of work concept that Bitcoin also shares, which is very intensive like on energy. So that's why they say Bitcoin is terrible for the environment. Ethereum essentially currently runs on the same system and is moving to a proof of stake mechanism, which should reduce the energy consumption by 99%. And so what changes there is when you stake something, you're putting up your Ethereum as a collateral for your word. Now, everything is run through software, so you're not actually doing anything. But as blocks are confirmed on the blockchain, you have to basically confirm that everything is as it should be. And if you try to mess with it or scam it or in some way try to say, oh, put through transactions that didn't actually happen, then you would get your Ethereum taken off of you. And so it's basically aligning incentives. So they want Ethereum to work and for it to be trustworthy. And to do that, you put up your Ethereum as collateral against your word. And so you're aligning incentives. So it's kind of the opposite of what would happen in real life where the bankers can totally fuck up the whole banking industry and they'll still get their bonuses. This is the opposite, where if you tried to scam that, you would actually lose your Ethereum. And so when you stake it, that's essentially what you're doing. You're just putting up your Ethereum and you're earning rewards on that. And currently you can earn about 4% on your Ethereum by staking it for Ethereum too. So that's the concept. And where would you stake it? There's three different places. There's liquid staking, which I'll get into. There's centralized staking, which is putting in Coinbase or another central exchange and they will stake it on your behalf. You won't get the same re like rewards as you would if you did it by yourself. But if you just had Ethereum sitting in Coinbase or s some other exchange, you could easily do that and make them the yield on it. And the downside of staking is that it's not liquid. So you have to keep it with them like a time deposit for a certain amount of time. So on an exchange, I don't believe you have to keep it on a certain time. Whenever you set up your own node and become a validator, then yes, you're essentially locked in and you're not liquid. But liquid staking is when you can put your Ethereum to work staking and then they give you a synthetic. Ethereum is kind of like an IOU. So you put your Ethereum over here and they'll give you like a, it's called an STETH, which is a one for one or should be one for one, an IOU ETH. 
And you can take that staked ETH like token, you can put it into Aave, which is a lending protocol, and then you can borrow stable coins against it. So you're making 4% on your staked Ethereum. You're putting the IOU into a lending protocol, which is essentially saying like, I have the collateral, and then you're borrowing a stable coin like USDC against it. So you're keeping the upside of Ethereum, you're getting rewarded for your staking, and you're still able to pull liquidity out of it and put it into a, a real estate property. This is what rich people do, essentially. Yeah. You're describing a setup of not cashing out assets, not creating taxable events, getting low interest financing and buying more assets with them. Essentially, that's what you've described. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, what Larry Ellison has a $20 billion line of credit against his shares for Oracle shares and can buy islands and boats and cars. And he never takes the tax hit of having to sell an asset to buy things. He just, it's like an IOU. Mark Zuckerberg does it. Bill Gates, these are the richest people in the world and they're not selling assets to buy things. They are taking loans against them, which is essentially what you're doing here, except you as a normal person can do this and don't need to be hugely wealthy. That is the exciting bit is that what you're talking about could work for five million. I've seen people do it at $5 million and $5,000, which is yeah. the democratization of these financial instruments is another big exciting point of DeFi for me. How's your course zero to DeFi going? I haven't gone through it yet. Now I feel I, I must. <laughs> oh, it's good. I mean, it's funny that the market currently is down, but for me, I'm in like DeFi for the long term. So I tell people there's going to be ups and downs, but like I bought more Ethereum today because I'm thinking like this is the future. And as we print more money and the stock market's down and people are seeing the power that you can do with like smart contracts in these systems, it's like people are not going to be sufficient or happy with getting this 0.3% on their money in a bank anymore. When the market's down, it's like, oh, is the thing's going to go move forward? But I think... The people have gone through it now are seeing things. It's almost like the matrix where you now you get an email from Goldman Sachs. Like, do you want to put yours in an 18 month CD for 1%? It's like, God, no. Can you even imagine? What are some of those other matrix moments that you've experienced having gone down this rabbit hole? Well, I mean, there's another video on my YouTube about this, this idea in DeFi of self-paying loans, which is when you can borrow against your future yield. So it's like an over collateralized loan, just like anything else. But it's almost like you go into a bank, you give them 100K and they're like, OK, we're going to be able to make 10% a year off of this. So we're going to give you 50K back of this 100. And then the, the yield that we make on it is just going to pay off the loan. So it never liquidates and we know we can make 10% on it. So it's essentially going to be paid off in five years. And as it's paid off, you can keep borrowing more and more against it. So there's all these like, new financial vehicles that don't make sense in, in a regular bank because they have so many overhead costs that you can do through code. And it, it's awesome. I'm curious. One of the things that's held me back from being more aggressive about this is I have two assumptions. Number one, for me to, for example, to pull off what you did with your home, that it would take me about two months of learning more or less full time to figure out how to do that. And then the second is that I am bad at paperwork like you are, you mentioned before, and I've made a lot of like kind of procedural mistakes in my life. And I fear that I will lose all my money if I take responsibility mm -hmm. for this stuff. I don't think it would take you two months to figure this stuff out. I think it would take you a, a few weeks. The learning curve is steep, but I think the rewards on the other side are just so much greater. And I try to tell people when they come through, 
I know it's a steep learning curve and it's a lot to get your head around. But once it's easy, once it's a button to do this stuff and it all takes care of itself, the rewards and the opportunity are not going to be the same. So like when there's friction, there's opportunity because a lot of people are going to be too lazy or too overwhelmed to get into it, which means that the rewards are pulled among a smaller amount of people. So then onto the security element, there's two elements to it. The first is I've got to trust this DeFi protocol. Like how, what if I stake money with, give money to them and then it's just gone? And then what if I screw it up? I mean, I'm more worried about myself in many ways than these protocols. Yeah, learning security. Honestly, if you do things that just make common sense, you'll be fine. I have a video that walks people through how to do this stuff, but I think, am I going to put money for my house is the first thing I do in crypto? No. You send like a test, a dollar through first to make sure it gets there. And then you send the rest and just double and triple checking everything. But I think once you get into it, like the stuff that you thought was like, oh my God, this is complicated, will be second nature to you. And I think a lot of people, like people gone through my course are just like, I don't understand anything that's going on. And then within a few weeks, they're talking, using the exact same terms. And it's like second nature because Again, incentives are aligned because this is your money on the line. You're much more incentivized to be able to know what you're doing. And there's a cost and a a reward once you figure it out. It's not like learning the piano where it's just the joy of learning it. Here, yeah. it's just like I am incentivized to learn this and make sure that I know what I'm doing because if I do this, I can make 20% on this money that otherwise would sit in my account and make 0.3%. Two more questions. It's interesting. I think a lot of our listeners are probably right on the precipice of wanting to go down the rabbit hole, wormhole. They have a bunch of holdings, but it's mostly on exchanges. It's a pretty common profile. And so you wrote an interesting blog post called Your Maternity Crypto Portfolio. And the kind of idea is like, I don't know, maybe you could walk us through a little bit like what are sort of like the minimum investments you feel that people generally interested in the future of money ought to be making to current time and still, yeah. you know, get their sleep. So for me, when I was gearing up to have the baby, I was thinking like, well, I don't want to have my money just sitting in my wallet, not making any yield. I won't have time to just jump in and take care of things. So what's the passive strategy that I can use that will not have me not sleeping at night? The baby will have me doing that <laughs> and making enough on my crypto to make sense. So it was taking a bucket of like, for me, it was like Ethereum convex finance and then I was showing what I was doing with it. So for Ethereum, I was staking it and then I was taking those tokens and putting it in another pool and making additional APR. So I think I was making around nine or 10% on my Ethereum. Then it was where I was putting my stable coins at that time, which was around 15 to 20%. It's not the same now because things change, but sometimes the rewards go up and down, but it's like, what's the minimum that I can do and, and still be making between six and 20% on my on my money. You could take USTC coin, which is backed by Circle, one-to-one -one with the treasury, so it's not a crazy stable coin, and you can put it into Gemini and make 6.5%. Um, so if you have money sitting in a savings coin or your crypto sitting in an exchange, what's happening is the, the exchange is actually making money on your crypto. You are not. Catherine, final question is maybe the hardest one. Switch gears just a bit. 20% of the audience doesn't yet have a business. They want to travel down the financial path that you have. What sort of general advice or encouragement do you have for them about next steps they can take in order to become financially free? So I would just say 
if I follow my own advice on what I did, is just upgrading your own skills so that you can. It's I kind of see life as like a video game. It's just like what skills are you developing that is going to make you more able to do something in the future. So like learning copywriting. That I I read copywriting books, learning um, design, and there's a book called How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big, <laughs> which I really like that book because he talks about all these sort of things that he did that failed, but skills that he picked up. And then it became like this weird, he was funny. He was able to write and draw not very well, but these three things together. So if you can do design and copywriting and maybe writing or video or something like that, like these skills, when you stack together, are actually much more valuable than single skills themselves. Learning something that you're actually interested in and adding more skills to your stack. So again, if you're in a video game, you just get better and better and you're able to do more in future levels. That's kind of how I see it. And I kind of like just in time learning. So instead of being like, oh, in two years, I might want to know how to read a profit and loss statement or something like that. What do you need to know in the next month? And then only learn that thing. Because when you learn it, then you can apply it and you're actually going to remember it. And so whenever I used to just read books, and learn something and not have to apply it right away. I'd have to reread the book a year later when I actually had to do it because I forgot everything. I love that. We appreciate it. And also, I, I really want to thank you for continuing to blog and publish on the web about your learnings. It's really cool to follow along on those sorts of journeys, especially in the long form. Awesome. Thanks for reading. Thanks for watching. Big shout out to Catherine Lavery for dropping by the show. She's a great follow on Twitter. You can find her at Catherine Lavery. Her blog is Little Might, that's little M-I-G-H-T dot com, where you can also find her course Zero to DeFi. I hope you can feel why I love following Catherine on the web. Uh, I think the crypto space, there's a lot of things that are basically just difficult to understand or maybe overly tribal. I love how Catherine just gives the nuts and bolts. Hey, Let's jump into a spreadsheet. Let's figure out how to work with these things that look pretty complicated on the surface, but we can break them down, start to understand them, and start to get a small glimpse into the future of finance. Hope you enjoyed it. I had a great time. That's it for this week. Whatever comes in the crypto markets, we will be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. We'll see you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.